Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Polta. I'm your podcast host and a professor in plant biology coming to you from Archer, Florida on the Exotics Farm. And we're going to talk about animal agriculture and how biotechnology has or maybe hasn't been able to improve animal agriculture. And we're speaking with Dr. Mark Westhusen. He's a professor at Texas A&M Veterinary Medicine in the area of physiology and pharmacology. So I've been trying to get him on the podcast for about five years, and here he is finally. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Westhusen. Thank you so much, Kevin. Yeah, this is really cool because you're, you have been um, not just involved in your research work and in your research directly with you know, animal genetic engineering and working with different projects, but you also have a very good sense of what's happening globally in animal agriculture. So I really wanted to get an idea, you know, what is the current state of genetic engineering across livestock and livestock really pertaining to the four-legged ones, you know, maybe not chickens, but we've covered a few on the podcast. But what are the current agricultural animals that are being improved with genetic engineering techniques? Yeah, Kevin. So I would say that almost every livestock species that you can imagine or think of, uh, including chickens, as you mentioned, but if you think about sheep, goats, cattle, pigs, uh, and even to some extent, uh, horses, uh, there are genetic modifications that scientists are looking into to benefit either the animals themselves and or uh, the products that they produce for us. So it's, it's, it certainly has a lot of potential and there's a lot of work going on in, in with all, I think all the different species. Well, you named a few different species there. And as a general rule, how is transformation done? Is it the same from goats to sheep to pigs to horses, or is there something unique about, you know, different ones? Yeah. The general methodology that's used for genetic modification in animals or gene editing is essentially the same. And I would say that with the new technologies that we have involving CRISPR-Cas, the meganucleases, um, it can be as simple as uh, collecting an embryo at the one cell stage, injecting it with the necessary molecular tools, and then uh, transferring that embryo back into a recipient female to produce a genetically modified animal. Um, if, the, if the modification that you're looking for is more complicated, or you know, say you want a very specific promoter on it, to, you want it, the gene to only be expressed or the, the outcome of the, of the modification to only show up in a particular tissue, say milk or, or something like that, then sometimes the, the, the modification, the complication of it would require that you would take a cell line, uh, genetically modify the cell line, uh, 
and then do some screening and genetically modify it again until you got the proper cell line, then use that with nuclear transplantation or cloning to produce the desired genotype that you're looking for. But essentially, it's uh, the technologies are the same across species. The differences come up uh, really in controlling the reproductive cycle. It's the old, the older technologies that have been around for a long time. Uh, I think that that tend to uh, sometimes throw a monkey wrench into uh, the projects. And I worked, for instance, I worked quite a bit on um, for years on dogs. And if anyone wanted to uh, genetically modify a dog, it's kind of, we're not talking about a livestock species, but the reproductive tract is quite a bit, or the reproductive cycle is a lot different. And uh, so they can become a lot more challenging. Where do you get the ovaries? Where do you get the embryos? How do you synchronize their cycles? Different things like that. Okay. So I, I see that it's probably kind of the same across most of our barnyard animals, but so so let's start with sheep. I really don't know much about sheep. Um, I haven't heard much about it, but what approaches are current? Well, what is the problem in sheep, first of all? And what's being done to solve that problem? Yeah, there's really no uh, problem with sheep. I think there's a, a left, I would call it a leftover uh, kind of thought that sheep are difficult to work with because uh, Dolly was one of the, uh, you know, first sheep that was cloned. And if you look at sheep from a standpoint of cloning, they are very, they do seem to be very difficult. And I don't think anyone really knows why. Uh, they just seem to be a species that for some reason, uh, the efficiency of cloning doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work very well. Uh, if you compared that, for instance, to cattle, or you compared it to goats or some of the other species, it's just, it's hard to clone a sheep. But if you, if you, get out of the cloning aspect and, and you say, I'm, I just want to do genetic editing. Um, we've, we've done a lot of genetic editing uh, in sheep and it works very well. Um, we, we use the process, as I said earlier, where we just collect embryos at the one cell stage. We take them into the laboratory, inject our CRISPR cas to uh, do the modification we wanted, walk them back over to the uh, unit, the surgery unit, transfer them back into the sheep and, and uh, produced a large number of genetically edited uh, sheep, uh, gene edited sheep. Our, in, in my lab, the, the edit we were looking at was to create a, a model for bone disease. And I wanna say we attained like 75% or something like that in terms of editing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really not difficult in sheep in terms of just you wanna do gene editing, but it can be difficult if you need to use cloning. Oh, I see. So it's, it's, it's a lot of interesting, a lot of very interesting that we would go to something like sheep that don't seem like a major agricultural commodity, like, you know, like hogs, for instance. But, but same thing with goats. You mentioned goats. So what's happening in goats? Well, goat, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the important things to point out here when you talk about sheep and goats is they may not be important in this country, but they're incredibly important in other countries scattered scattered throughout the world. Uh, if you if you would go, for instance, to Australia or New Zealand and you tell them sheep wasn't important, I think they would uh, take offense to that. Um, so there are a lot of uh, genes and 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 genetics and edit gene editing that uh, I think would greatly benefit the industry. But goats in particular. Um, Goats in particular, my focus, or I think a lot of the focus for them has been on using them more for the production of uh, 
drugs, therapeutics, vaccines, things like that in their milk. Um, many, many years ago, I think, and one of the things that drove the whole uh, idea of genetic modification of, of livestock was really founded in the idea of producing pharmaceuticals in, in the milk of animals. And if you look at the history of Dolly, uh, Dolly was really a pure accident. And, and the focus of that whole program was really to produce alpha anatrypsin in the milk of sheep. Um, goats happen to be produce more milk and they're better at producing uh, some of the uh, drugs and things that we would like to produce in genetically modified animals. So I think uh, goats, you know, while there are some meat consumption, dairy consumption uh, traits that we would be interested in, a lot of the drive for genetic modifying in this day and age, I would say, is probably in pharmaceutical production, protein, therapeutic proteins, things like that. Can you give me a couple examples? Because I can think of quite a few things that have been uh, raised in goats. And what are some of the real standouts? Well, there's already we have uh, antithrombin-3, I think it's AT3, uh, which is produced by a company called LFB. Uh, it's an anti-clotting agent that's actually produced in the uh, mammary gland or in the milk of goats. Um, there's also a couple other products, and it's been approved actually and been on the market for a number of years now. Uh, I know there's a couple other products, I can't recall them off the top of my head, that are actually produced in transgenic rabbits, uh, the milk of transgenic rabbits where they milk the rabbits. Um, in our lab, we've been working on, uh, in collaboration with LFB for a number of years now, uh, malaria vaccine. And we've, we've done some studies to show that the, the vaccine that we produce uh, in the milk of these goats can uh, cause an immune response in some preliminary tests that we have run. But, you know, these projects uh, get very, how should I say, uh, complicated and, and can be very competitive when you get in the world of pharmaceuticals and producing vaccines. So that particular project, while it has great promise, as we've really had a lot of trouble just trying to get, you know, funding to keep it going. Well, if we get away from the pharmaceutical traits and go towards more of the animal traits, like, you know, the the uh, meat production, or even if we think about it agriculturally, like feed conversion, there always was this trait of double muscled animals. And can you give us an idea of what does that mean and where do we see it naturally and what's happening in animals to um, to manipulate that trait? Yeah, well, the... The, num the primary gene that people have always targeted is myostatin. <clears throat> and myostatin is a negative regulator of muscle development. And if you look across nature, uh, you can find uh, myostatin mutations uh, in basically almost every species you look at if you, if you, you know, dig in the literature deep enough. Now, in certain breeds of cattle like Belgian blue cattle, uh, Piedmontese, I think some of the others, they've actually bred uh, over the years through, through natural breeding, bred these animals to contain uh, a mutation in the myostatin gene so that they do exhibit uh, increased muscling or what they refer to as double muscling. And what you end up with then is an animal that actually produces a lot more uh, muscle uh, compared to the fat. They're a lot leaner. They produce a lot more muscle. I'm pretty sure they're uh, a lot more feed efficient. So they, they, they just, you know, have a lot of really good traits that we would like to incorporate in many of our animals. Now, the problem with uh, 
with that is that these animals, for instance, sometimes also have calving difficulties because their, their calves are so muscled and big when they come out, a lot of them, they might have to take a C-section. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things you think about and can really look at is the beauty of the of being able to genetically modify animals because we could essentially design uh, pro, uh, design processes whereby which the animal might not uh, exhibit uh, a negative uh, a negative uh, effect on muscle development or might not exhibit say a mutation in myostatin until after it was born and so you could get uh, calving would be normal and then after that you would you know knock out the, or turn on a, a specific promoter that would then inactivate the gene and cause the benefit of the muscle growth to occur after birth so there's so many things that we can do with this technology um, another example might be you know just if, if you think about introducing a gene like that into Hereford cattle or some of the other cattle that have traits that we really want to keep we don't we don't want to dilute the uh, the Hereford breed, let's say, if we just take that in half by taking half of a, all the rest of the genes that we would have to take if we just did natural breeding, we're only interested in manipulating just a few genes. And in this case, we're talking about myostatin. And, and that's one of the real powers, I think, of the genetic modification or genetic editing is is to, to modify single, you know, individual genes or maybe just a few genes rather than 50%, which we would be doing through a natural breeding process. Yeah, so it's a much more targeted approach to uh, dealing with the question of breeding. Because how what is the gestation time on a uh, on a cow before she can uh, give rise to another calf after she's pregnant? Yeah, it's around two hundred and eighty five days, I think. So pretty close to yeah, two hundred eighty five days, so nine months. So it it is you know quite a length of time. Um, in the long term, you know. It, when you start talking about generate, for instance, traits that we see today in cattle have not, we have not been able to, to get to the point of the traits we see today in cattle without 50, 50 to 60 years of natural breeding. And when we, and now with the technology that we have to be able to identify markers, we can identify genes that have to do with tenderness. We can identify genes that have to do with fat. Uh, all these different uh, genes that we're now uh, discovering, the ability to go in and manipulate those in a single generation is just profound. Because uh, so you can go, you can essentially think about going from 40, 50 years of breeding to get to a specific place to now in a single generation, you know, caught or induce the the benefit that you want to or the gene that you'd like to see. How much of that is is hastened by artificial insemination? A lot of it is hastened by artificial insemination, um, it, but it's still natural breeding. And so, if you historically, for instance, if you look at when we uh, scientists figured out how to freeze semen, and actually you could freeze semen and then use it for artificial insemination. Uh, the dairy industry went, for instance, when they started looking at EPDs and, and sires and really evaluating sires for milk production and stuff, you know, those dramatically increased. We went from, let's say, you know, cows that produce five to 6,000 pounds of milk a year up to cows that are producing close to 20,000 pounds of milk a year on, you know, if you look at the, at the average and uh, across the, you know, the herd in the, in the, in the, in the country. But but that still took, you know, a long time, even with artificial insemination. It, it's still not as fast 
uh, as one could can anticipate changes you could make with genetic modification. Oh, very good. Well, we'll pick back up on this topic after the break. We're speaking with Dr. Mark Westhusen. He's from Texas A&M Veterinary Medicine. And we're talking about the current state of genetic engineering in livestock. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Our numbers keep going up, and that's thanks to you. There's a boatload of podcasts out there for you to listen to, yet our listenership keeps growing. That's because the best way to grow a podcast is word of mouth, which is a strange saying because I don't know any other orifice that generates words. Well, sort of. The stats have gone up like blue ballots on November 4th, and as we approach 1.5 million downloads in six years, we thank you for your loyalty to this enterprise. Keep up the good work. Tell a friend if you have any left after the election. Tell your family so they'll have something to do when we don't get together for the holidays. Or if you just want to sulk under the duvet by yourself, shoot us a few shekels over on the Patreon and we'll buy our way into more ears. It's all about sharing science in a time when innovation comes fast. You always can count on hearing from the cutting edge here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking about genetic engineering in livestock. Where are we with respect to some of the major animal species that are used in commercial agriculture? And we're speaking with Dr. Mark Westhusen. He's a professor at Texas A&M University in their veterinary medicine department. And, you know, when, when I've, we've had a number of guests on the podcast who have spoken about the innovations happening in hogs, um, a lot happening in pigs with respect to disease. So what are some of the major uh, breakthroughs or major innovations and what diseases are they targeting? Well, I think they're targeting uh, quite a few different diseases, but they'll, the scientists in general are looking at those and start looking at those that have obviously the greatest economic impact. The one that I'm most familiar with is PERS, um, which is reproductive respiratory syndrome, uh, porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome. It's a viral disease, I believe. Um, I could be wrong, but anyway, PERS is, uh, you know, cost, I read a, a little clip, I'm quite frankly dumbfounded on the amount of money that they suggested was lost uh, by this disease. They were, I think the term, the, the figure I looked at said, alluded to $6 million a day uh, to the pork industry that can be lost by this disease. So that seemed a little bit out of uh, line to me in terms of a, a believable, but I think it is believable that it certainly costs the, the industry hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, in losses due to that disease with pigs dying or pigs not becoming pregnant and producing, uh, or producing piglets. So, you know, that's the one I'm most familiar with, but I'm sure there are a lot of other diseases out there that scientists are working on. Uh, the interesting thing about pigs is um, they're also used quite a bit for biomedical research models um, and there are a, a large number of research models. And I think that you'll remember one of the ones that I thought was uh, really amazing that, that that was made, I think, at the University of Guelph years ago through kind of the using kind of the initial methods that we 
employed for making transgenics was the EnviroPig, which was better able to use phosphorus or, or in its diet and then ended up being a pig that really put a lot less pollution into our environment. So the point is, is I think while we can look at uh, pigs and say, I'm interested in modifying pigs that they're resistant to disease because we, we lose a lot of money and, and uh, over the years with uh, pig disease, there are a lot of other really interesting traits that we can think about uh, also that would benefit, uh, in many cases, the pig itself, and certainly uh, in, in the case of humans, just for pollution, the environment, uh, less fat, better fat, uh, more healthy, you know, meat. So, yeah, I remember that uh, the EnviroPig, I guess there's still some embryos alive in a doer of liquid nitrogen somewhere, but here's a great innovation that never found the light of day. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's really, it's in this day and age, it's really sad. You would, you would think that, that a, a large group of people would be saying, would be parading around and protesting that we, we, we need to get these things out there and on the market that don't pollute the waters of us. <laughs> oh yeah. But, 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 you know, for the listeners, I think this was probably 2001, 2000. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah. 20 some years we've been uh, in this battle uh, you know, to try and take advantage of, uh, of, the, of the ability to genetically modify animals. And, and one of the things, Kevin, that is really frustrating to me is how our uh, regulatory system has been set up uh, in terms of, and I'm sure this is an old story that you've heard of, uh, you know, thousands of times, but that if, if I want to go genetically modify a plant uh, and come up with a new watermelon or a new tomato or a new potato, uh, the the regulatory uh, issues and the, the regulation is essentially uh, non-existent compared to the the loops we have to jump through to try and get a gene uh, animal genetically modified. Um, so that's one of the things that in my mind has just never made sense in terms of certainly food production and food consumption is how is it and why is it that we can genetically engineer plants and crops and things like this and we eat them and they go into our market and no one ever makes you know much to do about it. Uh, yet if I say I want to produce a pig that's resistant and, and produces less fat and, and is more healthy meat, it, uh, it becomes an incredible nightmare to try to put that on the market and sell a pork chop. You know, it's just, it's amazing. Well, I, I, I know it's really a stifling environment. I, we've had uh, Dr. Allison Van Nienenem on the podcast multiple times, and she talked about her pulled cattle. Um, do you have any idea where that project is right now? I do not know, but I think it's pretty much, uh, you know, kind of in the same uh, category as uh, just setting out there ready to go. But uh, it has to be approved by the FDA before that would be able to uh, that animal would be able to uh, go into the market and use. Now, I think it is important to point out that recently uh, the FDA has come up with a new category, I guess you would call it. Um, let's see if I, I can't remember exactly. It's like, um, mm, I can't remember the exact word that, words they use. But essentially, um, the, what they have done is they've opened the door a little bit to allow for the evaluation on a case-by-case -case basis of gene editing and gene-modified animals are genetically modified animals that they then can decide 
uh, within the industry that do not require, uh, you know, they don't require them to go through this whole process like they have in the past, but essentially mimics that of, of getting a drug approved. So they can call it basically, put it in a category. It's a, it's a new category, uh, but it's similar to uh, minimal risk, a minimal risk category. So for instance, glowfish are in that category. Um, we, people, the FDA is not worried about the company that's, that's marketing glowfish. Uh, a lot of the biomedical models in pigs are in that category, but, uh, those, the, the, those pigs that are produced have, there has to be a promise that they do not uh, enter the food chain. But essentially, as I understand it, what this new category does allow is if someone, for instance, like uh, Allison would come forward and say, I want to sell polled cattle and and they've been genetically edited to be polled. FDA can uh, make a ruling that they don't see any uh, risk involved and they can approve it uh, without requiring it to go all the way through the, the drug uh you know, the normal kind of process that they would put a drug through to get approval. So there is a mechanism now by which these, uh, say, polled cattle, uh, maybe cattle that had a myostatin mutation, a single mutation that could happen in nature, those kinds of things can be approved uh, very quickly and get on the market, but it's still in the hands of FDA to make that call that they, they don't represent a huge risk. So it's a minor step forward uh, from the standpoint of, I'm sure that FDA is going to look at these very hard and say, well, what's the public think about this? And what's the public going to require? And what's the public going to say uh, before I just say, yes, you can start marketing your poll cattle, you know, but at least they have a mechanism in place where by now they can do that. You know, that's really different because uh, every time I would speak with, um, you know, Dr. Van Nienenem, it was all about how these are being regulated as drugs and then if you change, you have this 3.6 billion bases of an animal's genome and you change an A to a T in the laboratory, now it has to go through a regulatory pipeline that is as or more rigorous than if you were getting a new drug approved. Yes. Yeah, so, so now, and this has happened, uh, as I said, pretty very recently, um, it's called enforcement discretion. There, I found it. Uh, a new category called enforcement discretion for animals uh, re that represent low or no risk. So the FDA has the ability now, if you say to uh, this enforcement discretion to be able to, to as an, as an, as an organization, I guess, or an entity to set back and say, without, you know, they, they can, they can say you can market that and not require uh, you to go through all this, but it's still an FDA decision. You know, and so it's. It, I think it's just uh, going to take some time to see how this actually pans out. Uh, they've set up a mechanism whereby we can avoid all this uh, safety testing and everything like we would have to do for a drug. But how it's going to actually work, I think, has not yet been tested. But that's in the U.S. Are, are there yes. other systems in other parts of the world, like, say, China? Um, yeah. Are they are they as rigorous in this, and are they really pursuing animal agriculture through genetic engineering? Oh, they're pursuing it uh, very much so, and especially and and also in Brazil, South America, Argentina, a lot of these other countries. And and frankly, that's one of the reasons that the U.S. and the FDA has stepped up to try and come up with new ways to try uh, and regulate this, but at the same time allow 
some of these animals that have minimal edits, but great benefits and great characteristics to get on the market because these other countries are, are in contrast to previous, say, times when they would look to FDA for uh, guidance and kind of follow the FDA rules, they're, they're allowing these animals to go to the market. So they're already able to market, I think, animals in Brazil. I think, for instance, one I read about recently was a gene called Slick. Uh, Slick, it's a company called Recombinetics, I think it is, that has it. Uh, and Slick's a gene that's been shown to help with uh, heat tolerance, for instance. And I'm, I'm confident that, that those cattle and the way that other countries are looking at this, they're disapproving them and they're going to go on the market. And the issue is, is uh, you know, that... Th those not only are those cattle going to go on the market and they're going to be pushed through and there'll be some more probably hornless is going to show up soon in these other countries and stuff like that but there's really no way when once that happens that we can't say beef from south america is not going to be imported back into the united states and we've kind of just defeated the whole purpose or shot ourselves in the foot if you think about it because now we're importing beef uh that already has these these edits and modifications uh, allowing other countries to do it because we can't regulate it with what they're doing and and but won't let our own uh, you know farmers and breeders do it so it's it's, it's kind of doesn't make any sense but I think but the FDA's uh, movement toward these new categories and having the ability is is in many ways a response to the other countries saying we're going forward we're not gonna we're not gonna regulate this. That's really a kind of a funny coincidence. We were just talking about slick this week. Um, I was on a, a committee of a student who did her dissertation on uh, Brangus and, and heat tolerance and what were some of the genes that were involved in their hair length. So there you go. <laughs> it goes goes full circle. I guess the 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 big thing that concerns me though is when you have everybody else racing ahead, and it's great that the U.S. kind of you know got caught up. Maybe there will be a more streamlined system going forward. But if you could kind of wave your magic wand as a scientist who studies this area and come up with one innovation that you would like to see go to market, what would that be? Um, that's a really uh, difficult question uh, in a way. I One innovation – I would think, you know, kind of just what we're what we've kind of based this whole conversation on. I think that we have got to loosen the ropes and let these, for sure, these uh, uh, animals that have been modified, these genetically modified animals that certainly, uh, you know, we're looking at mutations that we've induced, mutations that uh, that are we might find in nature, could find in nature in a very easy way. Uh, that that they would you know that would be allowed to to get on the market right away because and and I think a lot of the disease resistance things also I, I'm I think that um, there's just no evidence in my mind that there's anything that's related to things we've done with genetic engineering and animals over the you know if you look at when the first mouse was genetically engineered 19 in the 1980s you know so. It's like I've just in my career never seen anything that alarmed me that I thought, why, why would you be so concerned that this is going to have a major effect on, uh, you know, the health and welfare of animals and or the health and welfare of humans? And especially in light of the of all the process and the progress that has been made with plants and crops. 
uh, it just it just seems rather ridiculous to me. So I think I don't I, I think I'm kind of dancing around your question, but I think the innovation in itself is a, is a big uh, it would be just the simple move to allow us to genetically modify animals and, and for food production uh, using the same types of uh, regulatory uh, rules, if you will, that have allowed the the introduction of genetically modified plants and crops into the into our uh, environment. Yeah, well, I'd hope it was even better than that because if you talk to people who are developing crops through transgenics, it still is a long road and really expensive. And you know, granted, gene editing is probably making it a little bit better. But, you know, but to me, I think about what's happening right now in the world with African swine fever virus, with PERS, you know, these uh, porcine or, you know, or hog related uh, viruses that just take a tremendous toll that I heard something like 50 percent of the pigs in China were euthanized last year. And, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but we certainly know that these diseases have really profound impacts that probably can be alleviated with genetic engineering. Oh, I think so, and I, and and I, you're undoubtedly you're correct. P- the poor, the pigs is a big target on market that could benefit that could benefit from this technology, and I think one also has to take it a step further and say, uh, you know, what when you're talking about pigs, for instance, um, you know, what are we missing uh, opportunity wise and or or uh, that we should be looking at in terms of genetic engineering when we, when you start to think about the zoonotic diseases that pigs could get. And because we don't, we didn't genetically modify those pigs so they didn't get sick, the pigs not only got sick, but now they transferred the disease to humans. And now humans have gotten sick because we didn't take advantage of the technology. You know, so it's, it's certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of, of opportunities out there and a lot of, uh, I think, uh, how should I say, uh, dangers that we're taking uh, or risks that we're taking by not uh, employing this technology, by not genetically engineering. I think, I, you know, I had a professor one time that said, you always have to, when you're doing risk assessment of something, you know, it's easy to ask the question of what's the risk if we do it, but there's also the other side of the risk. What's the risk if we don't? And I think a lot of times people, you know, ignore that second half of that equation. What's the risk if we don't employ these types of technologies as we move forward in this world? Well, excellent advice and probably a really good note to go out on. You know, I really appreciate having the time to talk to you about this because it gave us such a good update on what's happening across the board in animal agriculture. So thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, share with friends. Um, Talk about animal agriculture and some of the beautiful things we can do that really help us be better keepers of animals and help us be better animal husbandry, animal welfare, animal care. You know, so much of what we could do in terms of making animal life better would come from better genetics that we could control. So talk about that with some friends. Write a review on iTunes. And thank you again for listening to Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but... 
It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.